This is a podcast from Arts Council England and BBC Academy. Building digital capacity for the arts. Welcome to this series of podcasts taken from seminars and workshops as part of the Building Digital Capacity for the Arts programme. These events look at how the arts sector can effectively create and distribute high-quality arts content for its audiences. We look at the opportunities and challenges facing cultural organisations, from building apps to dealing with rights, exploring business models, opening up archives and IPTV. I'm Bill Thompson, Head of Partnership Development at the BBC Archive, and I'm talking to you from this month's event at the Siobhan Davis Dance Studio at the Elephant and Castle in South London. During this podcast, we'll be trying to bring you a flavour of the day's proceedings by sharing some of the highlights, including presentations, case studies and advice from experts in the field. Don't forget to share and bookmark our podcasts. Video and audio from all the seminars and masterclasses is available at artscouncil.org.uk slash digitalcapacity. That's artscouncil.org.uk slash digitalcapacity. I've said before that we, those of us in this room, are the first generation that has the capability to digitise all of the records of the entire past. Everything that's been kept so far could be made available digitally, but we may be the only generation that wants to do it because we grew up understanding the importance of the analogue, knowing how to use libraries, knowing how to reference material, knowing what these things were. And so it is incumbent on us to take this responsibility very seriously. At the same time, arts organisations, all of you represented here, are under enormous pressures to make the most of the assets you have, to spend money wisely, just as the BBC must, to reach out to audiences in new ways. And part of that is figuring out what business models are available for you to work with with the archives. Okay, so first up is Paul Gerhardt a digital archives associate, I don't think I've ever heard that phrase before, who's going to talk about the opportunities, what is possible, what lies before us, and how we can make the best use of the archive material. Paul. What I'd like to do to start off is to take you back to a room at the Idea Store in which used to be called a public library in Whitechapel in 2007. The event was the opening of an artist, Chris Dawley Brown's exhibition and screening of a project called BBC in the East End, 1958 to 1973. He brought materials from the archive and recontextualised them for and in a local perspective. Chris had brought it all back home by making a film using excerpts from the original programmes and by re-interviewing the participants in the same spot where they'd stood 36 years earlier, we were exposed to a fascinating blend of history, culture and identity. I was there at the Idea Store event as a kind of BBC suit, and afterwards I was confronted by Jenny, a woman in her 30s, who wanted, no, demanded, a copy of the films. Where can I get the film? Can I have the DVD? Is it on the web? It's about us, you know. We should be able to have it. And she had a point. 
and a very clear notion that cut through all the complexities of how and when the BBC should make its archive public. The BBC had a slice of her heritage. She paid for the BBC and she was determined to have access to it. Just as every community expects to have a right to access a local repository of the books that describe who they are and where they come from, so they have a right of access, I believe, to the sounds and the moving images that capture that past. Because we do need to ask why public access to our great audiovisual collections has lagged so far behind access to the world's great libraries of books or music. The experience of Chris Dawley Brown and Vicky Bennett and John Acomfra shows that opening up broadcast archives to artists can be mutually beneficial. So there is an opportunity to build on this core idea of linking artists with broadcast and other archives. Many institutions and galleries and museums already provide occasional access schemes for artists. And there may be a case for a national clearing house that opens up a wider range of opportunities which cascade downwards these rich experiences and the resulting creative output. So I'm clearly an advocate of some kind of national clearinghouse between artists and collections, and that would be wonderful. But I think it's only one step on the road. I think the real goal is even more ambitious. It's to work with national and regional archives to help them embrace this relationship with the creative community and begin the process of transforming our almost static inaccessible collections into open, living memory centres for all. So I'm a firm believer that the big institutions that we're talking about and the big collections need all the friends they can get, both critical and supportive, for good policies to prevail and for the right outcomes to be secured, they need the active involvement and friendly cajoling of all of us. Thanks very much. Some of the challenges that people face in this particular space um, are not just technological, they're also a mindset. So the way in which organisations are basically reinventing themselves from being traditional, you know, maybe walled gardens into not only being on the web, but of the web. But there are strategic agencies out there, like the Arts Council of England, like JISC, like the Heritage Lottery Fund, who are there to help. So my advice is check on their websites, pick the phone up, and learn from others. I also think it's a very creative time for people who, when we started, didn't have a marketplace for making very adventurous digital work. We had the first online drama, for instance, which, you know, was unheard of then. Now I think there's a way that all these clever people can make a living. At least I hope so. So I, I'm inspired by what the archives can do to create new material, inspire new material. Now I'd like to ask Jake Berger from the BBC to come and talk to us about the digital public space data model and what's been, what we've been working on. Right. Now, the web, it finds us stuff, it shows us loads of stuff, and it links to loads of other stuff. So it's great at linking things together, 
but it's not yet great at making real meaningful connections between all of the things. That's left up to the humans to do. It's not very good at saying that this thing is like this other thing, or this thing is different to this other thing. These are not the same things. Paris Hilton is not the same as the Paris Hilton. But if you try and find that picture by typing in Paris Hilton or Hilton in Paris, you have to work your way, as I found a couple of days ago, through about 100,000 of these before you get that. Most people are probably looking for the one on the left, but I was looking for the one on the right. We need to do something about this. It shouldn't just be what's popular that is always first. But all of this is possible. This is, this is about as technical as I will get today. This is the vision of linked data and the semantic web. How can we make this vision of connected availability happen? Starting with the material that we have in our own archives and our collections and the data, if we can classify or tag all of it, if we can digitize it, do this in a semantic web-friendly manner following some very basic simple rules and approaches, there's nothing more complex than the grammar you would learn in your first few years of secondary school. Then people can find our stuff. They can make their own assertions about it. They can relate it to other things. They can tell us things that we don't know about our own material. Well, we, the BBC, in conjunction with partners, many of whom are represented in this audience, are trying to create a framework that makes all of this thing feasible for any organisation, small or large. We've drafted an overarching data model in conjunction with a number of organisations. The data model simply brings together a whole load of different catalogues, classifies and identifies them in a consistent way, picks out themes within them and types and sets and relationships, maps out those connections. The really clever bit of actually a few algorithms that create and associate all of these different things in a way that a human being could do if they had kind of 10 million years at their disposal. But this can only work if it's much, much bigger and broader than the BBC. All we're really trying to do is create standards, frameworks and tools for other people to use. It must work for everyone, for the smallest organisation or individual, due, you know, down to, up, up to the big, biggest behemoth. So we want people to contribute data and media to make it available. We can help you understand easy ways to do that. We need people to play with what we're creating, try and break it, tell us how to make it better, tell us, oh, if only if it did this thing, suddenly that would, that, would fit my, that would fit my world. And we want people to think about how they could use what we're creating to supplement the stuff that you're already creating. Thank you for listening. Today, because I think archives are going to be a huge issue for all public organisations. We all have these amazing collections, and the irony with the photographers' galleries, we don't have a permanent collection. We've got this amazing archive of audio of all the talks we've been doing over the years, as well as kind of like the, the marketing and the ephemera, which builds up this amazing history. So we're sort of in a position where you have all this stuff, but what do you do with it? It's not accessible in any way, so it's just like sitting there getting kind of lost. My name's Seb, and I work for Art Angel. Well, we've got a huge online archive, so I guess I was just interested in picking up some new techniques, new ideas about how to make the most of that. Um, and also these, um, these events are quite useful generally anyway, to meet people, to 
get some new ideas, that kind of thing. I think we've heard from Paul about some of the real things that are being done and what happens when you get access, particularly to audiovisual archives. But of course, audiovisual archives are not the only thing there are. And, and part of the point about the Digital Public Space Initiative and the data model that Jake is talking about is that it applies to all sorts of digitised information. That's text, bibliographic records, scanned documents, anything. And we'll also incorporate born digital material that doesn't have a real-world equivalent. John O'Confra had to trawl through hundreds of hours of BBC archive footage looking for just the clips he wanted. Cassette Boy, who makes those fantastic YouTube parodies completely without permission, that take words from largely BBC material and reuse them, has to watch all of that stuff. Just imagine how many hours of The Apprentice that poor man had to watch just to do the Alan Sugar parody. Whereas with access to the digital public space, that sort of fatal undermining of the credibility of a public figure could be done in minutes instead of weeks and obviously there are enormous public benefits that would arise from that. My name's Sarah Fermi, I work for JISC. Uh, we're a funder of digital content uh, across education, heritage and the arts. Um, some of the, the main barriers that we come up against are intellectual property rights, um, business models, understanding audiences and these were some of the issues that are being discussed today, so that's why I came today. Um, the, well, there's a very specific interest um, in the material from, from today because um, the place has uh, a very long history of recording performances there. Um, so um, one of the tasks that I have to deal with when I'm there is actually managing that archive um, and digitising it and finding uh, a productive thing to do with it. Uh, so, yeah, the conversations today are really relevant. We're now going to hear from Professor Sarah Watley about a case study around making it happen, as she puts it, with Siobhan Davis. Um, what I'm going to be talking about today is very much a story um, of a very productive collaboration between a major dance company, UK dance company, and a university. And so this, so the archive is very much um, a story about Siobhan Davis dance. And it's a story about trying to increase access to the work and feeling excited about what would happen if indeed we do create more, more access to her work and to dance in, in general. Um, we knew quite a lot of the content existed here, belonging, belonging in inverted commas to Davis and the company. Um, but there was no hard copy archive. So in some ways it was a born digital archive. Um, and also importantly, we're talking about an archive and all the meaning associated with the word archive, but of a living artist. And an artist who is very much a living, working artist who continues to make work. And that in itself can be challenging for anybody building archives. Don't think of it as a fixed period of time. It goes on and it goes on and it goes on. Um, and the most difficult problem of all, sustaining the archive. How do you sustain it beyond the funding period? Um, because there is a real annual cost of updating, server costs, licensing costs, people costs. They're real costs. And the reality is the world changes terribly quickly. So it doesn't matter what you're told in 2006, it probably won't be what you're told in 2009. So because the world shifts so quickly, you have to keep thinking forwards, 
Keep replanning, revisiting that sustainability plan. What you thought was going to be the surefire moving forward from end of funding period onwards when you start the project is not going to be the situation when you finish it. So how the work itself is represented through the archive is very important. It reflects back, but it also changes what she does today and how she makes new work into the future. It's an active process. But in that, it also collapses time. It's an art form, of course, dance that doesn't have ready access to its past, its history. So the archive brings the past together with the present, together with the future. But that can be disturbing for all of those who thought the work would never be seen again. So for all of those contributors of work that was made in the 70s and 80s, that can be quite um, uns unsettling, to bear that in mind. And the uncertainty about what happens when it goes online. Who is going to use it? Will, suddenly we, will we suddenly sell the content to Coca-Cola? And I have to say, we have been approached by some interesting uh, film producers who were interested because the quality of the content is so good. They want to buy the content. We can't sell it. Hmm, interesting business model that we didn't think about at the beginning. Davis's work is predominantly UK-based, but we were able to discover that her work is now seen worldwide. Between 2009 and August 2010, we had nearly 45,000 visits from about 10,000 unique visitors from over 90 countries worldwide. Now, on the face of it, as a web resource, that may not sound very many, but actually, if you relate that to the number of audience, audience numbers for the live work, it's colossal. And we are being contacted all the time by other uh, cultural institutions across the world who are fascinated by the archive and, and coming in to see Sue's work for the first time. So it's, it's working on this worldwide basis. So we think, in summary, that we've created this very uh, productive knowledge exchange between the company and ourselves. At the heart of the project is an artist-led resource, an artist-led initiative, and that was really important to us. But a digital archive is not only a resource or a repository, but it's also a new kind of representation of dance, or whatever the principal content is. It's not simply a conversion from the analogue to the digital, it is a translation. And that means that the work changes or has the potential to change. So it's not simply a distribution of old art, but it can be used generatively to create new forms of art. And this is perhaps the best way of keeping it fresh and living, and with it, new and better informed audiences for dance. Thank you very much. Well, I think um, it made me think about the future. And, um, you know, like they said, when a lot of this work that we were involved in happened you know, in the 90s and 80s, um, we definitely weren't thinking about the internet because it didn't really exist. So it, I, I'd like to think more about how we build that into you know, how we work with the artists in the future, building those kinds of permissions, that kind of thing. I think that would be uh, very sensible. And um, I like the idea of tying it all into the wider internet, tying it into bigger archives to make things easier to find somehow. I think a huge challenge is future-proofing. I think we all, as um, someone said upstairs, um, get told one thing one year and then three or four years later formats have changed, standards have changed, everything's changed somehow. So while we might build up 
the flashiest, most wonderful archive that we can this year. We know that in five or ten years the web will look radically different and that's a very expensive process to keep going through. So we've got Naomi Korn to talk about rights and permissions and how to avoid reinventing the wheel. In an ideal world we can have these spaces where all this stuff exists and wouldn't it be brilliant if we didn't have to think about copyright and we can just let people use it and do what they want with it. But copyright does exist. There's a whole other discussion we can have about if it's good that it exists or not, and that's not what I'm going to talk about. But I'm going to talk about the fact that within this pool of resources, there's going to be a whole range of rights that needs to be, need to be identified and then managed effectively in order for people to use this stuff. And this is the idea of process. Before a work is created, ideally you have a conversation about who owns what rights and then what permissions do they then grant to your organisation to be able to use that material. Copyright in any organisation, for it to be effective, has to be determined by a policy. What are you going to do about X, Y and Z? What are you going to do about Orphan Works? How do you want your stuff used by your users? It needs to be supported by processes so that staff know how to deal with it. It then needs to be supported by the right tools so they have to hand the right types of mechanisms in order to deliver the processes that support the policy. And that all needs to be underpinned by staff awareness. If staff don't know what the issues are, they can't do any of that. If these, if these guys or users are going to be using the ball of resources for anything more than you, you've actually got permissions, that's basically an infringement. It's not going to work. Or if it's not an infringement, it means that halfway through a project, you're going to need to go back and ask for more permissions. It might be that because you've done this early enough and treated it as a process, that you decide to change your mind. That maybe works that you were going to put online, it's just not going to be feasible. It's going to be too expensive. But you've got that timeline within your project in order to allow that to happen. And this is really the idea of the compatibility of permissions coming in with the permissions that you then grant out to your end users. You might want to, for example, use an open content license like a Creative Commons license. And you would certainly, absolutely need to specify that in your permissions from any third-party rights holders. Within this sort of bigger picture of allowing people to use your stuff, I personally don't believe that that precludes you from developing business models that surround your content. But also, you can simultaneously have similar resources being delivered to the same or different users. So an example might be that you have low-resolution images or low-resolution um, types of your resources being delivered to your users under one type of license, but high-resolution images being delivered under another type of license. There would be nothing to stop you actually delivering the same content under different licensing frameworks. Um, over the last two to three years, or three years plus, I've been working with the Strategic Content Alliance on an IPR and licensing toolkit. Um, which can be used by public sector organisations to help them manage the rights and permissions associated with their content. <clears throat> it exists in paper form as a series of template rights clearance letters, briefing papers, um, risk assessment tables, your heart's desire in one book in terms of helping you 
It's all free and it can all freely be customised and adapted. It is genuinely free, 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 okay? But in this digital world, we wanted to do something a bit cleverer than that. And so we developed six learning objects as part of a learning module <coughs> that contained all our resources and the context surrounding the resources. And um, please have a play with the tools that we've had such fun in creating. The biggest challenge, I think, is money and the right kind of sponsorship from people who could learn from us when we're doing what we're doing, as well as us sort of benefiting. I like it when people who give us money uh, gain themselves from what they learn. Um, it's a, think about who your audience is, I think, is, um, is a cliche, but a very good one. Um, always think about who's going to be using this archive and why and what they want to find. What is a unit of archive content? Is it a project? Is it actually a piece of video or writing? And then, you know, start from the bottom up, but it's got to be led by content, I think, uh, and you have to think these things through very carefully before the monolith of creating an archive goes into motion. What I hope we have managed to do for, for all of you is to make you think more seriously about the issues around making use of archived material, the potential for collaboration, and to appreciate that there is an underlying level of technology that makes things possible. And that many of these things were not possible until quite recently. But then also that the systems we have for getting permission to use other people's material, to work with it, all those systems have not yet caught up. That there is this lag, and we live in the time of that lag where it is enormously complicated and may end up being quite expensive to do things which seem natural if you've got a Mac with iMovie on it and are used to editing your home movies and there are no issues around it. This is a rich and complicated but vitally important area. And it's important because, as I said at the very start, we are digitising material, we are making it available. Institutions, the BBC, Arts Council England, the British Library, British Museum, Royal Opera House, Q, all these institutions are working together. Umbrella organisations like the Strategic Content Alliance and GISC are trying to make us all share our ideas, collaborate, build an infrastructure around this idea of the digital public space that will make more and more material available and that will ensure that where the rights are cleared, where the assets have been digitised in the appropriate standard formats, we can get access to it. For the BBC, in my day job, those partnerships around the digital public space are absolutely fundamental to what the BBC does as it moves forward. And we hope to work in partnership with all of you continuing the partnership with Arts Council England to deliver on that and to deliver the digital future that we're all going to go out and create. And I think it's an enormous opportunity and I'm personally very excited about it. Don't forget to share and bookmark our podcasts. Video and audio is available from all our seminars and masterclasses at artscouncil.org.uk slash digital capacity. That's artscouncil.org.uk slash digital capacity. Building digital capacity for the arts. Thank you.
You've been listening to a podcast download from Arts Council England and BBC Academy.